So we've been talking about the attributes of God, and, and we, we did this because um, not that God's taken a beating, but people are really sort of painting God in a poor light. And I thought it would be important for us to go to the Word of God and sort of set the record straight. And so we've been doing that in several aspects and facets of God over the, the weekend, the um, omnipresence of God, the righteousness of God. Uh, we spent some time last night. Uh, what did we talk about last night? It wasn't the grace, it was the goodness of God. How can we forget? God is good all the time and... God, that was so weak. Uh, God is good all the time. It was only the front row right here. God is good all the time and... Oh, now that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's a sense of power. No, just kidding. Now, now today we're obviously going to talk about the grace of God because I, I like you, have uh, went to the seminar of the Wilder family and, and you know, the one word you repeated like a gazillion times was grace. And last night in the concert, you, you spoke of grace. There, there's a sort of a reformation sort of saying that goes through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, right? That's, that's, good, that's good doctrine. And, and this idea of grace of God can sometimes be a little, little difficult to put your arms around, but yet it's sort of like the oxygen of the spiritual life. There isn't a single thing in Christianity that happens without the oxygen of, gra of the grace of God permeating your very spiritual anatomy and pulmonary function. So I think it's important we understand, at least begin to understand something of the grace of God. So let's pray. Our Father, as we come before you today, there is a need for the throne of grace to be exercised. I love that about your throne. It could be called a throne of so many other things, but the word of God calls it the throne of grace. It's where grace is known. It's, it's the calling card of everything about your reputation, that God is gracious. Father, would you visit us this hour as we discuss the grace of God? We would do so with total dependence upon that which is you, the grace of God. Let, us, let, us, let it bathe us this morning through the working of the Spirit of God. In the name of Jesus, I ask, amen. Now, when we talk about the grace of God, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to look at it with, as my, I'm just a very simple man, in several points, and it's a definition, demonstration, salvation, that'll take a little time, potentiation, and that's the only word I could come up with that ended in T-I-O-N, so you're going to have to deal with that, and in exhortation, all right? And so this will, you'll see that sort of outline develop as we go through this next hour. Now, when we do so, I want to I first get to it and establish the definition uh, the definition is pretty important to me. So turn over to Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Now, if by chance you, you did not have a, a remember or have a chance to grab your Bibles, most of the scriptures I'll be referring to will be a PowerPoint for you. And, um, and the slides over the whole weekend have been made available uh, uh, through the chapel here. So I'm sure you can get that through the IT department here, which I have to say is outstanding. So big hand for them. All right. So Titus, whoops, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Now, it goes like this. For the grace of God that brings salvation. Okay, stop right there. Remember what I said? Reformation cry. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. You're going to see that develop today. The grace of God related to salvation has appeared... To all men, you see that all, that's very important. It's, it's, it's the idea of reaching every person. Okay, now then in verse 12, he talks about an effect of the grace of God, which is teaching us to live a godly life. But just hang on, just for a moment, verse 11, keep in, in mind the, actually the English translation is not bad, that, that says has appeared. Okay, see that? Now look down in chapter 3. Chapter 3 
And I'd like you to begin reading in verse 4. In verse 4. But when the kindness and love of our God toward men or toward man appeared. Now, what's similar about those two verses? The word appeared, correct? Right? And it's true, it's the same word in the original language. And in somewhat, it looks to me, it's like somewhat similar construction. Now, the point that I'm making is a point that you get, again, from the, the world of mathematics, okay? And here's what it is. The common denominator is the word appearing in those two statements. So if you, if you say um, the grace of God in chapter 2, verse 11, is equivalent to something appearing... And then you go to chapter 3, verse 4, and you see that the uh, love and kindness of God is also equivalent to something appearing. What you do is you set up a mathematical equation. Now, do not go to sleep at this point, just because I use the word mathematics. Okay. But basically, it means if A, which is the grace of God, equals B, which is appearing... And in the next verse, if the love and kindness of God also equals uh, appearing, then clearly the grace of God has to be something dealing with the love and kindness of God. That's very important to understand. You see, when we talk about the grace of God, does it mean he's just a nice guy? Does it mean that he's just got good manners? A lot of times we'll use those words in that sort of context in our regular flow of, of communication. Or does it mean that God has, is a, just a generous person? Well, I would like to submit to you that the grace of God is very intimately tied with a couple of things a little bit deeper than that. Number one, it's, it's tied to motivation. And the word that describes motivation is the word love. It's the same word that you would see in other texts, for the love of God has appeared unto all men. Uh, 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 behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Uh, for God so loved the world. And, and the uh, famous chapter 13 of, of uh, Corinthians, um, where he says, and love is patient and love is kind. And if I, if I am able to speak with the tongues of angels and have not love, I, I'm nothing. And so what does that tell you? That tells you that this love of God, which is sort of intricate in the idea of the grace of God, has to deal with a tremendous motivation where God looks outside of himself only for the, uh, uh, per, only for the advancement, if I may, the uh, needs, if I may, the, the, the desperate situation of those about it. It's an other words orientation. And it has to deal with a, a, a care that comes spontaneously from the giver to the receiver. The love of God. I have a whole message on the love of God as an attribute of God. And if you'd like and stay for the evening service, we could do that then. But i got to catch a plane at three, so it's not going to work. Now, what about kindness? What about this kindness? Now, I, I think it's one thing to say, gee, I love you. But if you have a need and I don't meet it, what does James say? We can't really love like that. We have to love in word, not only statement, but deed. I think kindness is the deed. The kindness part is where God steps out of his throne room, where the love of God is pulsating like the heart of God, and reaches outward in an act of genuine benefit for the other person. See, a lot of times we do things that are kind, but it may not actually provide the right benefit. It's just nice, you know? But God has a way of doing both. He, he has a way of being kind not only to do a nice thing, but to be of the best nice thing to be done that gives maximum benefit and maximum uh, 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 elevation of the other person. This is how God operates. The love and kindness of God has now appeared, or you could say the grace of God has appeared. Now, if you could 
agree with me for a minute, and since I'm the only one speaking, you have to. The point is, is that this grace of God has this sort of two, um, how should I say, collaborative, um, um, uh, um, um, meshed ideas. And as we go through this concept, this attribute of God, I want you to keep that in mind. Now, I want to talk just a little bit about this idea of, of the kindness of God. Um, I'm probably breaking the law. No, I don't think so. Maybe. Way back in early when I was a young physician, so I worked in emergency medicine, and uh, how do we say this nicely? For those of you who are physicians in the room, weird things happen in the emergency department. You know, guys come in with arrows going through their heads and stuff like that. Well, this guy, we got a call one night, and the fellow was in jail. And the guy was already considered a loser. How do I know that? Because this is how the call went down. This is Unit 44, and we're at the jail. It's like 2 in the morning. And we're picking up this guy who says he has chest pain. Now, immediately, when you're in the field of emergency medicine, do you know what you assume? That's the get-out-of-jail-free card. Because nobody can let you sit in jail if you say, my chest is killing me, right? Because if it does kill you, that's a big lawsuit. So, they're over there at 2 in the morning, and this guy is like, I can hear him in the background. He is yelling and screaming profanity. He is cussing and swearing. And these medics are trying to do their job. And you know, for those of you who are medics, that's not fun. You know, you want to tie the IV, uh, IV pole around his neck, all right? So my nurse and staff gets the call, and, he says, and the medic says, and he probably shouldn't have said this, he says. And he's in here because he was beating his wife. Now, all the, all the nurses that night were female, and boy, they are mad. They are just, a guy hasn't, we haven't even seen the whites of his eyes. And the, this guy, he's be, he'll be lucky to survive the ER. <laughs> and so he comes in, and I understood when he got there why nobody liked him. Because the nurses were trying to take care of him. He's cussing and swearing and spitting him and yanking this and yanking that. And after literally three minutes, one of the nurses comes out. She throws the chart on my desk and she says, Dr. Price, you got to go see this guy. Meaning, you got to go get this guy to cooperate. And I go, okay. So I start out thinking, I'm going to be calm. Man, I go in there, and the guy is screaming and yelling at me. So, you know, in the ER like that, the guy's laying down flat, so his body is stretched out this way. So his head is looking up at me, and I'm looking over his head. That's a position of advantage, because he can't swing at me. And so, but he is like really, I mean, he is just a jerk. He is just... And, you know, that's the moment... Where I wish I exercised grace, love, and kindness. But you know, when somebody's spitting and swearing and screaming at you and everybody else, that's the last thing on your mind. You know what the first thing on my mind was? It was this. You need to sit it out and let us do our job. And so I'm yelling right back at them. Okay? You see, the kindness of God is maximized when it has to be displayed against the blackest backdrop of human resistance and rebellion. Agree? That's when the grace of God has appeared. There was nothing polite about us. There was nothing nice about us. The, the, the Romans, the book of Romans is very clear that we were not only, not only cantankerous, we were rebellious, angry, and poison were in our lips. The book of Ephesians, excuse me, says this, that we were rushing, we were riding the rapids to our, to our destruction where Satan and the principalities and powers were headed. 
You see, there was nothing polite, nothing nice, no redeeming qualities. And that night, that guy had no redeeming qualities. Can I tell you the end of the story? It has nothing to do with the message. So I yell at him, and literally, after I finish the exclamation point on my sentence, he looks up at me, and that's a certain look that you never forget. I don't feel so good. And I look up at the monitor, and there's this thing that looks like this. Now, those of you in medicine know what that is. What is it? Yeah, it's VTAC. <laughs> and now I'm tacking away. Because in about three minutes, if I don't do anything about that little rhythm, he's not going to be with us. I've never been in a situation where I yelled a guy into VTAC in my life. <laughs> so we do what you do. You, you, it, back then we used paddles. We didn't have the thing on there. And I say, and it sort of goes into slow motion mode, like, get the paddles. Okay. I mean, that's like Dory or something, you know. And I get... Kaboom, baby! And you know the whole thing you've seen on TV. And he, literally, in 30 seconds, he goes, Oh, what happened? I go, We almost lost you! He reaches up. <laughs> this is so funny. He reaches up, touches my cheek. You're such a nice little doctor! <laughs> Actually, he used a few other expletives, but I can't mention them. <laughs> Nothing to do with the message, but I thought it was kind of funny. All right. <laughs> the kindness of God shines brightest in those moments where it's darkest. Now, you get that hint, of course, in Romans, you know, Romans 5 that talks about the, the love of God going to some would die for a righteous man, some with a good man, but Christ died for us and that while we were yet sinners. That's that progression. There was no redeemable qualities. I, I so appreciated the, the testimony of, the, of, of, our, of all those with the Wilder team and uh, Adams Road and, and just the idea that I can't do enough, but I've done something. Maybe that would, that, would, that would cause God to shine a light upon me. And the answer is, according to Romans 5, is he, he died when you were yet the worst possible condition for you. See, that's the idea of grace. Grace reaches to that level. So if you're here today, and you find yourself in a condition, a spiritual condition, a condition of soul, maybe a, even a depressive state where you're thinking, I just can't be good enough. I just can't, I just don't understand it no matter what I do, no matter what I turn, where I turn. I just feel inadequate before God. Welcome to the club because that's exactly how God intended it to be because while you are yet a sinner, Christ died for the ungodly. And everyone here that knows Jesus Christ as our Savior invites you to know the same Savior on the same grounds. Because it's the grace of God that makes the difference. It's the grace of God that spans the chasm. And if you feel that chasm before God this evening, this morning, I want you to know that the grace of God is what you need. I'm, I am a victim of the grace of God. Happily so, I might add. You should also know, Christian, that that grace that saves you is the very grace that you live on every day. None of your strength, none of your wisdom, cleverness, brightness, ideas, vision, all that stuff, none of that. It's all the grace of God. I was sitting next to my friend, Phil Boom. And we, we have a, a good, really great friendship. And he just, he just said to me, he, he said something about, are you ready? I said, well, I think the Lord's picked the bottom of the barrel. And he goes, actually, it's the grace of God. Yes, there's that too, Val. Thank you. I'm just going to speak on it. <laughs> right, Phil? <laughs> I heard that too. All right, let's move on. Now, I want you to look back at chapter 3. Boy, I am not doing good with time. My, my, oh. Chapter 3, and I want you to see this here. 
He goes on to mention several things. If you read after verse, uh, oh, here it is. Verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Did you notice that? Right? It's, it has nothing to do with any deeds. You see, that's the idea of, of, how, of while we were yet sinners. But according to his mercy. Now, his mercy is very closely aligned with his grace. And his grace is closely aligned with his love. And so what happens is you see the mercy of God coming from the love of God, which is in essence saying it has its roots in the grace of God. He saved us through the washing, see the action, the kindness act? through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Spirit. That's the action of the cross, whereby Christ died on the cross for your sins. He takes his Spirit, the God and the Spirit, and, and literally, or not, uh, I should say, spiritually baptizes you, immerses you into the truth of and, and efficacy, the efficiency of the work of Christ. That's what that means by those statements. Regeneration, renewing, I think, has to deal with the sanctification, the growth process whom he poured out abundantly. You see that word abundantly? He says, there is, there, there is, I'm just such a generous person with this. I, just, I dole out grace all the time through Jesus Christ. You see, that's a key thing. We think that God is nice and kind and the world thinks that, but the, when God wants to express it, it's all through Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when we get that mixed up, when we, when we get Christ out of our focus and compass, we have a distorted view of grace. That's why we, we, we come to remember the Lord like we did. We keep our Christ as our focus so that the grace of God and the faith alone have their appropriate collaborative efforts with, with Jesus Christ. You get Christ out of focus, everything else is out of focus. And so he says, the abundant through Christ Jesus, our Savior, and then notice this word, having been justified by grace. What does the word justified mean? It means that you're declared right before the guise of the law, before the judgment, uh, the judgment, uh, uh, the chief justice of the universe. Think about it this way. It says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's in Revelation. So he stands off on, on the, on the uh, prosecutor's side, and he's screaming and yelling at the judge, this client, this person, this accused is mine. The law should come down upon him. He has committed these several crimes, and they've been repetitive, and they've been worsening every time. This client should be in my clutches of death. And the chief justice is flipping the book. And he goes down the list. There it is. Stephen Daniel Price. Blood of Christ. And I see the chief justice. Bam! Raises his gavel. Smacks the podium and says, Case closed! Out of my courtroom, you accuser! See, that's what it means to be justified. Declared right in the eyes of the, of the judicial seat of justice. And that's what grace does. It, ta it takes Christ, puts him on the cross. He is now taking your penalty. The judicial rendering uh, that was due you is now exo uh, uh, exonerated, resolved. So when your case comes up by the accuser of the brethren, he has no case. Every one of you who know Christ as Savior live in that every day. And when you meet someone who doesn't have that, and they discover it for the first time, you hear stories like Adam's Road. Do you ever notice how that they got saved and they never got over it? Did you notice that? I think there's a lot of us that got saved and got over it a long time ago. May we return to where we should be. All right, I digress. Let's move on. Okay. Now, the Lord Jesus is a demonstration of this grace. Turn to John chapter 1, verse 14. Now, if you're uh, unfamiliar with the significance of the book of John, it's, it's a book that... that 
bespeaks of us of the deity of Jesus Christ. It begins that way. We talked about it in yesterday's seminars. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's a certain kind of uh, construction there in which there is no doubt who deity, who God is referring to, and who the Word is, is, is being identified as God. It's very clear with the articles and all that stuff. Um, but in, in that, that begins the chapter, and then we get down to, we have some discussions about John the Baptist, and we get down to verse 14, and it talks about Jesus once again. And he says this, And the word, that's Jesus, became flesh, that means flesh and bone, and dwelt among us, among us that means he walked on the planet. Now John takes that idea in the first verse of book, uh, book of First John, and he says, and we used all of our senses to evaluate him, and guess what? After our deep, deep and wide analysis, we discovered he was God. That's really what he says in chapter 1 of First John. And he says, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, that means any, the, the kind of glory that comes from God the Father himself, that's what we saw in Jesus. His possession of that, that's what we saw in Jesus. And then he says this, um, full of grace and truth. So what he's saying is the things that make God glorious are his grace, pitted with this idea of truth. So the loving kindness of God, because that's our definition, is now being pitted against this idea of truth or in conjunction. And so what, how do we work out that? Well, the idea there is truth, that there's a, a defined righteousness. Oh, we talked about that Friday night or yesterday morning, one of those days, right? This righteousness, that there is a standard of right that God has all the credentials to be able to make and create because he has no blemishes of his character and he's all wise and he's all powerful and he's all present. And all that comes together in God being able to define the moral and ethical code of the human creature that he created himself. And so, it's, a, it, it, it's glorious of God to not only do that, but it's glorious of God to balance it with his grace. You see, that's the kind of God you have. He's perfectly, appropriately balanced in his temperament. He never has a bad day. He never has a manic or, or a depressive episode. He is an oak tree of personality. Consistent, genuine. You know what you're going to get because he tells you what you're going to get. And this is one of those cases. Now, the law was through Moses, and so there's a comparison, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's saying the law is that codified element that defines in human terms the idea of righteousness, both in the Decalogue, which would be uh, more of the case-like case um, uh, renderings, and then you have uh, the more of the specifics in Exodus 20 through 22, as we discussed earlier. But grace and truth... Sort of, he, he's saying that word but, he's saying in contrast and, and it's hinting in superiority, grace and truth is through Jesus Christ. Now, what this tells you is that you need to study the life of the Lord Jesus and specifically ask the question in each episode uh, the, uh, of the narrative, where is grace and truth or how is grace and truth being portrayed? And when you do that, you do that kind of through the harmonies of the gospel charts, and you look at each, each event and each, each narrative, and you say, well, how does grace and truth shine forward? I mean, one of my favorites, which I think I mentioned two years ago, so sorry, but it's that, that leper story. The man full of leprosy who comes, comes to the Lord Jesus and I can just see the man weeping in great tears like that patient who was cantankerous in my ER, just weeping, begging, y'all, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Can you make me clean, please? Maybe that's you. Weeping at the feet of God. Most of us in, in, in difficult human situations don't like that. We reject it. We walk away. But here's the Son of God. The man was begging. He was a prostrate before God. It says, here's God. Here's Jesus. Reaching down. And he touched the leper. The last thing you do in, in, in that disease is touch the leper. I can just see Christ pull that blob of humanity right up to his mouth. I'm 
so willing. Grace and truth. Doesn't that melt you? Because let me tell you, my middle name could have been leper. My Savior has not only did that to me when I was born again, he's done that to me countless times since. And he pulls you close to his mouth. He's touching you to communicate in the nonverbal way. Grace and truth. I invite you to receive it. Well, we must move on. Time is so much against us. I'm going to jump ahead here. I want you to see Ephesians for me for a minute, or with me for a second. All right? This idea of the demonstration of the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 1. I'll begin reading so I can move us along. Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what we call the title sentence to the now 14 or 11-verse paragraph. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Now, Obviously, this is a hotly contested verse that has to deal, uh, and the contest or the, the disagreement has to deal with this whole concept of does God choose or does man choose and how much and what proportion and all that stuff. And, and we could take up that discussion and accomplish nothing. Because what I really think is important is being missed. What's being missed is this concept that, that first of all, we should be holy and blameless with him, before him in love. You see that? That's part of the grace definition. And look at this, having predestined us to adoptions. That's a first degree relative. And in the Greco-Roman society, when you talk about that, it's talking about him as, uh, uh, or talking about you as a son that has all the rights and privileges of a bona fide blood heir, blood uh, uh, um, inheritance. And he's saying, I have done that to you. In Greco-Roman society, they had a big process in the adoption. And when the adoption occurred, there'd be a celebration. There'd be a, a, a legal binding commitment. And that son would be treated like any other son of the house and would have all the inheritance rights of anyone else. And I think we miss that. We, we get caught up in these other terminologies and the extent of which they apply, don't apply. And, and, and we get lost in it and we forget that the adoption is what he's talking about. And where does that adoption come? Read on. Have made known, and here, oh, sorry. Which he made, oh, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. You know what that means? I'm doing this because I want to, not because I have to. To the praise of the glory, read it with me, of his grace. Do you see that? The grace of God is intimately and intricately involved in all the blessings that you receive spiritually. And the blessings, number one, that you receive spiritually is this being in him in love in a bona fide state that is acceptable to God called holy and blameless. And the second blessing that you have, which he has predetermined to be part of the package of it all, is your adoption as a son with an inheritance. And the inheritance is described in the next few verses, which define it as a, as a spirit, as an inheritance. Inheritance in Christ sealed, that is, bonded by the Holy Spirit. So it's irrevocable. Oh, listen, Christian. That's the grace of God. It has so many acts of kindness associated with it. Being in him in love, holy and blameless adoption, inheritance sealed by the Spirit of God. My goodness. How, how many can you, do you have enough fingers to count them all? No, that's how the grace of God operates. It's super abundant. It's super generous. It just keeps going. And I didn't mention it in, in, in John, but it says there, whoops, my slides went off. 
I didn't mention it in John, but it says grace upon grace. That means the idea of, of, of grace giving, giving way to more grace. And then that level of grace gives its way to more grace. And it just keeps compounding. That's how God gives. That's the grace of God. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. Now we get to a couple of other things, if you will about this idea. Look at in, in, in the text, if you look uh, in verse 7. In him we have redemption through the, his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. <laughs> A lot of times we say, oh, someone's rich. We mean monetarily, you know, they, they have lots of money. They have lots of possessions. They have lots of things to show their wealth, and, and it's impressive, isn't it? But how about being rich in grace? Really, what, 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 where, did you, where did you get your riches? Oh, I got them from the investment market of grace. Really? Is that like the Wall Street thing? No, no. It's more like a heavenly thing. You know, what a thing to be known, known by, riches of your that's what he says here. It, it has, again, con conceptual relations to the irrevocability of the inheritance that you receive. But grace is an intricate part of salvation. Turn to Romans chapter 3. We have to see this. This is, this is part of the testimony and gospel presentation of our dear friends from Florida. And they, and they said it so well. Quoted, I believe, by... Was that, was that Matt? Were you on the, on the PS? You quoted that whole passage. You know how I know that? Because I looked it up. I, found, I made sure you were correct. You were good. You were good. Verse 21, I'll begin there, Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Okay, what does that mean? That simply means that God has a body of truth that is testifying to what Paul's about to say. And then he says this, even the righteousness of God, which is the theme of Romans, the righteousness of God through faith, there it is, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That goes back to a statement in which, uh, which is later on in, 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 um, in Romans 11 where he says, you know, all of this is done so that all might be guilty before God so that God might show mercy on all people. Well, that's precious. Anyway, look at this. Uh, being justified freely by his grace. I believe it was Joseph who was opening this segment and, and he was saying, or you said it like three times, freely given. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, freely, you said that like three times. You, you're citing this, this idea. Freely given. Huh. One day I was in the neighborhood of our church and we were passing out Christmas gifts. And of course, the Christmas gift we chose was a Bible. I mean, we are a Bible church, so why don't we give out Bibles? And so we were, and, and we went to this one house, and we, you know what we do, we sing, we sing a Christmas carol. And, and, you know, that poor people, they're listening to non-professional singers bellow it out, you know, and I'm not very professional. And so we bellow it out, and he goes, oh, 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 okay, just a minute, just a minute. And he goes in, and he pulls out his wallet, and he goes, here's a donation to the church. I said, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. We just want you to have this. And to make an American understand it, we have to say, free gift. I thought a gift was free. Why do we have to add the adjective, free gift? Well, because we have a society of commercialism that says, hey, we got a free gift from you. Just buy 10 of these coffee cups. What? Right? So we, we got we to gotta, we gotta fight that counterculture, and so we say it's a free gift. Well, God is not, he's not, he's not ambiguous. He says, freely given. That's part of the grace motif. It's freely given. You cannot earn it. You cannot do anything for it. You cannot even look good to get it. You are a recipient Something's totally spontaneously from me. That's what he means. And that's what salvation is. And that is supposed to change you. Did you know that? 
That idea of God being so generous and so magnificent in his presentation that he freely does everything for you, freely does this so that you might enjoy the beauty and the joy of Jesus Christ, that is supposed to change you from the day you were born again until the day you received in glory. And many of us have let it quit changing us. You know what we call that? Tragedy. That is not what he intended. Never has been, never will be. We must press on, forgive me. The idea of salvation, I have to read a couple of more of these. Turn to Romans chapter 5. The same concept you'll see there. It says, but the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man. See the conduit by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But notice the word here, abounded to many. Notice the, uh, verse 17, the abundance of grace. And notice, oh, excuse me, notice the text that happens. Oh, I didn't miss it. I messed it up. Oh, here it is. Notice the text that says this, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Do you know what he's saying? He is saying, I will never, I will never, I will absolutely never let sin win the race. I will always make sin be defeated. And I won't defeat sin by a nose leaning forward at the finish line. But I will beat sin by the longest mile that you have ever dreamed of. Where sin abounds, my grace superabounds. It's immeasurable the distance between grace at the finish line and sin. Do you see how God is? Why are we walking around thinking he's stingy? I did that one time. I was talking to a brother about the work of God and, 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 and the needs that we have. And he does, he's, such, he's a Canadian brother. I love him to peace. He's a fellow physician. He comes up and he says, and he, and he talks uh, much faster than me. He goes, no, Steve, 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 you need to stop there, Steve. So I start talking like him. I said, well, why, why do I need to stop? He, listens, he whispers in my ear, you act like God is broke. He's not broke. <laughs> oh, you're right. He's not only not broke, he likes to give it away. Super abound. Do you see that? Oh, that's, that should grip you so tight. Because right now, you're in a trial. And you're wondering if the grace of God is limited. Is the hand of God short? No, it's not. It wasn't short at your salvation. It will never be a short. Uh, it will never be short ever. Uh, it, it just won't happen. So quit thinking it is. All right, let's move on. I want to jump ahead in our talk today. And I want to talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So not only do we need to understand grace in terms of its definition and grace in terms of its demonstration and grace in terms of its salvation, but I want you to understand grace in terms of its potentiation. Now this is passage is about Paul and he had um, his testimony is here and he had some type of, it probably was a physical ailment. And he says, and lest should I be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, meaning all that Paul was shown from the Lord Jesus, probably in Arabia and at other places, a thorn in the flesh, that's the idea of something bothering his soma, his body, was given to me. And notice this, a messenger of Satan. God is using messengers of Satan. Hmm. Did not know that. you got to be good with that because he takes all of the wrath of man and I might add all the wrath of the angelic host and he'll turn it around to praise him. And he says, the measure, uh, messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be above, exalted above measure and concerning, concerning this thing I pleaded with the Lord three times, pleaded very desperate. I plague you, I beg you, take it away. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient 
for you, adequate for you. You see, the grace of God is not only defined by the love and kindness of God, is not only demonstrated in the Lord Jesus, is not only shown to us in salvation or the salvific story, but the grace of God is also a potentiation so that in the heat of the trial, in the battle of the moment, when you feel like you have no strength and the flesh, or you've got a thorn in the flesh, no doubt as a messenger of Satan, God's grace brings you through it. That's what he's saying. Look at, look at, read it. Therefore, or most gladly, therefore, I rather boast in my infirmities. Paul, Paul, you've got a stroke and you're boasting about your stroke. What is wrong with you? I was uh, working in the ER oh, on a Sunday afternoon. It was crazy. Sundays are terrible for ERs. And this guy came in. He was 30 years old. He was coughing up blood. And he had been a missionary to Africa. 30 years old. When I went in to talk to him, he greeted me. It was like this. Good afternoon, Dr. Price. How are you? I go, I'm fine. How are you? I'm great, thank you. I said, I see you're coughing up blood. Yes, that's happening. I said, I see it says here you have lung cancer. Yes, smiling the whole time. And I said, how did you contract lung cancer? He says, it was when I was a missionary in Africa. I said, did you smoke? Oh, no. Did you do drugs? No, no, no. Did you go with girls that do? I didn't say that. I didn't say I said, you're a missionary. And I asked him bluntly, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, as the one who died on your cross for your sins and rose again? He says, he beamed. It was like being in the presence of Moses with the face shining. Yes, I do. And then he looked at me like he could see into my soul. I'm so thankful for my cancer. Because I've been able to tell so many about the God I love. You ever have one of those moments when you feel like you're with somebody that you shouldn't be with? I was a puddle on the floor when I left. You see, this is the kind of thing Paul's talking about. Boast in my infirmities. Take pleasure in my infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions. Just put your trial in that list. Because the grace of God is promised to be sufficient. And if you remember that verse that's in Hebrews 4, which another brother read this morning at the very end of our breaking of bread service, he read that verse that we can go to the throne of grace to find help and grace in the time of need. Do you see the grace of God just doesn't save you? The grace of God not only keeps you, the grace of God brings you through, sustains you, and perseveres you. It's all the grace of God. And when will we ever seem to get that in our mind's eye because Paul is living it right here. But I want you to know something that's kind of tragic. The grace of God can be resisted. I want you to turn to Hebrews 12. This is our closing verse for those who are in charge of the clock. I'm sorry. Gabe told me not to apologize Sorry, Gabe, I am anyway. This is very important in our closing segment. Looking carefully lest anyone, verse 15, chapter 12, Hebrews, looking carefully lest anyone falls short of the grace of God. What? If God's grace is so super abundant, so extending of itself, how can I fall short of something so apparent? Well, that's actually easy to do. How do you do that? No faith. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's Paul talking about the Christian life. And what we do is that, and this is key, God gives his abundant grace, but we say, oh, no, thank you. I don't want that. I want to stay angry at my spouse I want to stay angry at my boss. 
I want to stay angry at my children. I want to be right. And I want that person to apologize to me. I deserve that. Grace of God is being resisted. Let me ask you something. If anybody in the world deserved an apology, who would that have been? The Lord Jesus. And let me ask you something. How many people apologize to the Lord Jesus? I can count it on no fingers. Pharisees didn't come back. I'm sorry, we we messed up in the trial. (laughs) A little little procedure thing, you know. Now, when he went before Herod, he was made fun of. Hey, show us a little trick. I was hoping to see a trick today. Pilate, he was just spineless. Let me ask you something. How is it if Jesus received no apology for all the brutality he received, which was, by the way, yours and mine, why do you expect an apology? You see, you're resisting the strength that God has given in your time of need to be received and digested so that you can actually go through the moment like Jesus Christ. Over the years, I've received so many calls about broken marriages, painful, broken marriages. Eventually, I end up usually talking to both parties And then without a doubt, without a failure, each person says the same thing to me. If you've only known how much my spouse hurt me, you would understand. What would I understand? That you want them to hurt as much as you've been hurt? What would I understand? That you deserve an apology? Oh, I understand all right. I understand that you are resisting the grace that has saved you. And in so doing, you're basically making it not count. You see, the grace of God can be resisted. It produces, as the text says, you can see it, bitterness, envy. Don't let that be your legacy. The grace of God saved you. It's, it's, it's painted all over the concept of salvation, which should galvanize your life to be and live at a different level of, of, of everything else. But we've forgotten that. That the grace of God has this kind of love, kindness, and expression. And when we get in, therefore, into the daily trials of marital life, of church life, of family life, of job life, of life in society, we become graceless. May God have mercy on our souls. Shall we pray? Father, Confession is very painful. But I can think of so many times in which I have been graceless and all I've ever known is grace in abundance. Well, forgive me. Forgive us for what kind of Christians are we? What kind of Christ-like ones are we if we fail to understand the grace of God? Oh, change us, fix us, make us new. If we're really new creations, refresh in us again, reawaken us to what it means to be born again by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone, I beg of you, like the leper before Christ that day, in Jesus' name.